Hello. Welcome back to Conversations with Stephen Kamgesa. This is the second of three podcasts on climate change. Today's guest is Ms. Maria Digman, a scientist and conservationist. Maria was born in 1965 to Major William Carl Burke, a US fighter pilot who saw active service in the Vietnam War. Major Buck was among those listed as missing in action, presumed dead. Maria's mother, Mrs. Antonate Mira Burke, was subsequently folded into the legendary Al Warren family after remarrying Al Warren Jr. Al Warren Sr. was an American lawyer, politician, jurist, who served as the 14th Chief Justice of USA from 1953 to 1969. Warren also led the Warren Commission, a presidential commission that investigated the 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy. He is considered to be one of the most influential Supreme Court justices and political leaders in the history of the United States. Warren was the only governor of California to be elected for three consecutive terms. Maria attended the amazing Candin School in California, whose unique calicra had, in Maria's own words, a great influence on me. She afterwards went to Prince, to Prince Pierre School in Missouri after taking up her place at principal, before taking up her place at Principal College in Illinois, where she graduated with a degree in sociology. After leaving Principal, Maria, inspired by her legendary step-grandfather, Al Warren, first tried her hand at politics, working for Democratic Party Senator Thomas Egerton, but subsequently removed to South Africa to explore Pastons New in 1989. She was fortunate to know a few friends at the University of Wits, where she acclimatized to South Africa's rapidly changing political climate, which saw Nelson Mandela released from prison in 1990. This was the environment in which Maria's life changed fundamentally by falling in love getting married and settling down to start a family in Namibia in the 1990s. It was in Namibia that she also fell in love with endangered and misunderstood animals. It was this love for endangered and misunderstood animals that led to the formation of the Rare and Endangered Species Trusts, REST, in 2000. REST soon acquired a worldwide reputation for Cape Griffon vultures conservation, but subsequently turned its focus to, pup, to the pup, meticulously recording every aspect of the pup's life as it developed. This was the first time such a thing had ever been done in history 
the experience completely changed Maria's life. Her dedication to the pangolin is captured in a BBC documentary, Pangolins, the world's most wanted animal, narrated by Sir David Attenborough. Maria is now busy working towards establishing a primarily pangolin conservation center and a carbon sinking initiative in Emerald Forest Reserve in Nigeria. It is spearheaded by her Nifty Pangolin Campaign, a fundraising initiative with a view of establishing nine pangolin conservation centers around the globe dedicated to the protection of the most trafficked animals in the world. As if her hands are not full enough, Maria has just published a book entitled Pangolins in My Life. In this episode, we discuss the topic, how to love endangered and misunderstood animals. Ms. Maria Dickman, welcome. Uh, thank you, Stephen. In my searches for this podcast, I discovered that your father, Major William Kalbach, was a US Air Force fighter pilot during the Vietnam War and is listed as missing in action, presumed dead. That your mother subsequently remarried, marrying into the hugely illustrious Al Warren family. Maria, please tell us something about your childhood that has had the most profound influence on you as a person and how that experience influenced the woman you subsequently became. Well, Stephen, as you've mentioned, I obviously had some very amazing people um, that I was able to look up to, uh, that were my family um, as I was growing up as a child. And I think as I got older, I realized their importance not only to myself, but to the United States and, and maybe the world. You know, my father was a war hero. My grandpa Warren was very well respected um, in in civil rights issues and things like that. But I think as a child, both those people played sort of a normal role. They were just my grandpa Warren and 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 my papa. Um, but I think if I look back at really one person that changed my childhood, it would have been um, my grandmother. Um, she did one thing that that probably changed, if I look back now, my entire life. She had a pony named Pretty Boy who got out of their little stable in their yard and went down the road and mated with uh, Daisy, a pony owned by someone else. And for whatever reason, my grandmother got the foal, who she named um, Buddy Boy. And one time I had a very long holiday and I went down to visit my grandmother. They lived about eight hours um, to the south of California from us. And my grandmother's goal, I realized later, was to have me fall in love with this pony, basically because this pony did not like my grandpa fielding. So everything worked as according to plan. I got some riding lessons. I fell in love with Buddy Boy. And by the time I left, Buddy Boy was on a very big truck with racehorses and show horses from around the country. And that massive semi-truck 
backed into our little suburban neighborhood, and out came this little pony, who then was my heart and my soul. Um, he he was my everything. He was my best friend. He he was my confidant. Um, he was he was just everything in my life. And because he was everything in my life, and and my parents were very um, very good about one thing, and that was that if I wanted something badly enough, and this was something that was a real luxury for us. You know, we were middle class um, economically, and so I had to get a job. So I can remember every Tuesday night, the newspapers arrived very late and I had to roll them all up and put rubber bands around them and get a little bit of sleep. And then I got up very early in the morning and I delivered a weekly newspaper. And funny enough, it was a newspaper that people didn't even have to pay me for. You know, it was an advertisement of, you know, local community things. But because I would get off my bike and I would take each newspaper to the door and you know put it right by their front door. You know, these mainly older ladies and, and gentlemen would actually give me money at the end of the week and I would, you know, get my share of the profits. And that's how I paid for my pony. I paid for his room and his board and his food. And I think it taught me a few things. One, it taught me the ethics of good work. Um, the value of good work and doing, if you're going to do work, to do it well. Um, it taught me that I enjoyed working, um, the the success of it and the achievement of it. I actually enjoy being a hard worker. But it also taught me the value of putting something else before my own needs. Um, you know, at that time, I was, I was a youngster. I didn't have a lot of needs. You know, my life was pretty basic. But, you know, I had to provide for this you know, precious pony in my life. And then I think lastly, it gave me the foundation for my absolute love of animals. I actually love all animals. You know, people say, why do you love vultures so much or bats so much or pangolins so much? And I actually love every creature. Um, some are rather irritating like mosquitoes, but, you know, there's a place for pretty much every animal in, in this world. And um, and I respect that and I love them. I think my focus has always been on the underdog um, because, you know, I sort of pick the one that nobody else has picked or that very few people have picked to work on. Um, and that's why my focus has been the animals that it, that it has been. But I think that influence from my grandmother probably changed my life more than anyone else. My searches also discovered that after graduating from principal college with a sociology degree, you worked for some time for the Democratic Party Senator Thomas Egerton with a possible political career very much in view. Maria, kindly tell us what changed? That is, why did you switch from politics to conservation? And why Africa, of all places? Well, a lot of people will tell you there's a lot of politics in conservation, <laughs> which is probably true. But I definitely changed my career. And I definitely loved working for the senator. It had started as an internship when I was still in university. And then I was hired over the holidays and some of my time after university, and I really loved it. I loved working in the Senate. I loved the the whole atmosphere of, of Washington, D.C., and I really felt strongly that I could be an honest politician. And I, I think my grandpa Warren had given me a lot of that motivation, um, especially looking back at his life and his record. 
So it was really something that I wanted to do. A lot of my co- my fellow students, maybe two, three, four years ahead of me, had focused a lot on the Eastern Bloc of Europe. And that really fascinated me. But I felt once I started you know, really researching into what my future career would be that I'd sort of missed the boat on that area. And then I started looking around and Africa had always fascinated me, but suddenly there was, you know, Southern Africa and what was going to happen in South Africa. And it was starting to get a lot of uh, press coverage, um, a lot of worldwide attention. Mandela was still in jail. There were a lot of protests. South Africa had become very insular and, and was, you know, really doing a lot to keep itself going. And the whole situation just absolutely fascinated me. And, you know, being young and having a little bit of experience with politics, I thought, I certainly didn't think I had all the answers, but I thought, you know, I I had a good grasp of what was going on in South Africa. But I thought to get a better grasp, I would go over for nine months, um, really get some firsthand on-site experience, and then be able to relate that back to my career in politics in the future and really have somebody that knew Southern Africa and knew, you know, all the different angles, um, you know, in Washington, D.C. So I got on the plane, um, ended up meeting somebody on the plane that introduced me to someone else, and I ended up staying in this woman's backyard. And, and I really, it was in Joburg, so I spent a lot of times with a, a lot of uh, time with some of the students at Witts University, which was at the time considered one of the more liberal universities. And I started to get a feel for all sides, and I started to realize that I just hadn't had any any element of grasp of the situation. That it was much more complex, um, but really still fascinated me. And during that time, while I was staying in this woman's backyard in a little room that she had, her son was a pilot for SAA, um, the South African Airlines. In fact, he's still a pilot for them. But he wanted to set some world records in the country just above South Africa called Namibia. Now, at the time, Namibia was just getting ready for its independence. It was still under South African rule. And um, the whole situation was, was just really up in the air what was going to happen. So he said, you can follow me to Namibia, you can drive around, I'll have a vehicle for you, and I'm going to try and set world records um, for flying hang gliders, and you've just got to find me at the end of the day. So I got to drive around the entire country, meet people from all different walks of life, rural areas, city people, you know, conservatives, um, very liberal people, everything, and, and the country just fascinated me. And interestingly enough, when I had first arrived, another hang glider pilot um, met us within the first 24 hours, and I fell in love. I mean, there's there's just no other way to say it. It was instant love between both of us, and he eventually became my husband. But in that process, I fell in love not only with an individual man, but with the entire country. So I ended up working for a law firm, making sure that I really loved Namibia the way I thought that I loved it. Um, went back to the States, you know, sort of packed up everything, came back to Namibia. And my future husband was an engineer for the government. But he had also come from a farming or or what Americans would call a ranching background, a cattle farm in Namibia. So eventually he left his, his employment um, as an engineer and we went back to the farm. And the farm was located near one of the... Um, Uh, public reserves or one of the governmental reserves that hosts endangered animals on it. And it is quite a well-known reserve, very, very small. 
but um, you know, eventually the farm that we lived on backed up onto this plateau, and the Waterberg Plateau was the last roosting sites of the Cape Griffin vulture. And I really, you know, was part of the community. I was well accepted in the community. Um, I was known for, you know, if there was a case of a leopard, you know, took out one of your calves or something like that or injured it, that, you know, the neighbors would bring the calf to me because I really loved caring for the animals and, you know, trying to get them back up into their condition. But these Cape Griffin vultures just fascinated me. And at the time, we had a little tiny guest house and we had some neighbors that had top international um, visitors looking at their wildlife situation. They worked with cheetahs and, you know, people from around the world would come and visit their center and stay with us on our little tiny guest farm. And one day we had some guests and I just knew them as Art and Pris, um, wonderful people. And it turned out that Art was very involved in the San Diego Zoological Society. He, he was a top ornithologist in the United States. He had been very involved with bringing back the California condor. And the condor is actually a vulture. They were just politically very wise and called it a condor because vulture has some negative connotations around the world nowadays. But he had done everything that I thought had to be done for this Cape Griffin vulture in Namibia that was going extinct. It was our most endangered animal. And here it was on my doorstep, literally. And I decided I wanted to try and do something. But I needed somebody like him. So Art and I were sitting. I can still remember exactly where we sat on sort of the cement step um, overlooking this beautiful view on our farm. And I said to him, Art, we need somebody like you. Somebody with the name, with the know-how, you know, with the connections to help save this vulture. And I'll never forget his exact words. He looked at me and he said, Maria, we don't need somebody like me. It's Namibia. We need somebody like you. You just need the support of people like me. And that basically started my, my drift into conservation um, in a very serious mode in Namibia. And I, you know, eventually opened an organization, started an organization, um, got people like Art to support us. Um, it was never a one-man show. Um, all of the successes that we had and, and continue to have are because I was able to bring in this you know, group of people and community of people um, that that were very knowledgeable, much more knowledgeable than myself at that time, and we really achieved some some amazing successes, like getting you know satellite tracking first ones in Africa to put satellite tracking on a vulture, and and now doing some groundbreaking pangolin work. So the transition went slowly, but it also at moments you know was was groundbreakingly quick. Um, just because of the influence of people around me. The most delightful discovery during my searches was the charming story you shared with me about Roxy, the mother pangolin. I think our listeners would be interested to hear more about your experience with Roxy, the mother pangolin. Would you please tell us what was so special about Roxy? And what was it that made you say, that's it? I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life fighting for the pangolin and other endangered animals. Hmm. Roxy was truly an amazing pangolin. The story of Roxy is basically this. I got a call from a colleague and a friend in a neighboring town 
And they said a Chinese national who works in Namibia has just brought in a pangolin in a box. Um, it was brought into his store by poachers and offered for sale. And he bought it for 400 rand. I think that's about 22 US dollars um, because he wants to save it. So he's brought it to me. He doesn't want any money for it. He's willing to give it to me. Um, but I don't know anything about pangolins and you do. So what do we do? So I immediately got my car and I drove and I picked up the pangolin and I thanked, you know, everyone involved with saving her. And I took her back to my house in a local town. At that time, my children were still in school. So we had this little tiny townhouse that, you know, we would spend some time at when I wasn't on the farm um, where I was doing my vulture work. So I thought maybe she's, you know, uh, the story that I got was that she'd been carried around. The poachers had said they'd had her for about four or five days and were carrying her around trying to find a buyer. So I knew already that, you know, she probably hadn't eaten. She probably hadn't been cared for very well. And she was probably under a lot of stress. So I kept her in town in case I needed some immediate veterinarian care from the specialist. And I had a little aviary in my backyard because obviously people would bring me little animals and sometimes, you know, birds and, you know, their instant care would be there in town. So I put Roxy in this little aviary and I sat in a corner of it. And I opened up the box and any experience I'd had with penguins beforehand, because they had been one of the animals that we had given, you know, picked as, as one of our forgotten five species when I started my organization. There was a frog, there was a snake, there was the penguin, there was a vulture, um, and eventually the dictic, a little tiny antelope that's, that's quite endangered. So the penguin I knew a little bit about, I knew what I'd read from books, and I had had a couple throughout the years. And at the time, the protocol for handling a pangolin was you received it, you offered it some water while you were organizing transport, you put it in transport, you took it to the wildest area that you could possibly find, you opened you know, your car, and you just released the pangolin. And we, that's what everyone did. There were very few of us, and we really thought that was the best method. I mean, today we realize that's, that's just opposite of, of what should be done. But at that time, that's what we did. So I opened up this box. I wanted to see how she was responding to me because all previous penguins that I had released had you know, sort of just been very stressed, curled up in a ball, and eventually just walked out into the wild um, and wanted nothing to do with humans. You know, that they would sense where you were and they would go in the opposite direction. So Roxy came out of this box. She drank water and she walked straight up to me. And she sniffed around my legs and she, you know, put her little feet up on my my knees and she looked at me and she crawled up on top of me and I was flabbergasted. Um, I couldn't believe it. And, you know, I have footage from my my new iPhone 4 at the time. I was so proud of it. And I, you know, I have this footage of Roxy just having this instantaneous bond with me. And I'd never heard of anything like this. So I immediately contacted the few people that were in Namibia and said, what do I do? And they said, you know, we'll come pick up the pangolin. And I, it just didn't feel right. So I contacted another friend of mine who was in the States, who was a Hollywood um, sort of fixer. She would be the one that would go onto the Internet and find, you know, that one prop that they needed or that one site that they needed. And I said to her, find me somebody who has worked long and hard with these pangolins in captivity. And she found a woman in Zimbabwe named Roxy Dankworth that runs a wonderful organization helping wildlife um, in Zimbabwe. And Roxy had held this 
uh, the same species, Cape pangolin or ground pangolin, for the longest of anyone in the world. So I immediately called her. And she told me things that were totally unconventional for what to do with a pangolin when you get it. Um, and she, you know, shared with me some little tricks that she had and I utilized them. And this pangolin just kept responding so positively. And Roxy said she had also never seen anything like this with a wild pangolin coming in and just wanting to almost be with me. She would make every effort that she could to actually, you know, crawl into my lap and, and, I figured maybe she she realizes that I saved her and she's sort of so grateful that for whatever reason she's bonded with me. So I took Roxy to the farm and I gave myself four days to find a tracker because I thought this is an amazing opportunity to put a tracking unit on a pangolin. Anybody who had done it that I could find said, you know, the pangolins aren't usually really happy with being followed. But here I thought I've got a pangolin that actually really enjoys my following her and enjoys coming to me when we're in the wild. Um, she does that on her own. So perfect animal to put a tracker on and start learning more about the species. So at day two, I had some visitors um, that came every month. It was a tour guide that I trusted. I really liked him. Very, very ethical man. And he always brought a bus of, of visitors to see the vultures that I had that were non-releasable. So I thought long and hard and I said to this group, Okay, since I like your guide so much, and I know that he'll make sure that you listen to all my requirements, I'm going to do you guys a favor. I've got a pangolin. I had her in my vulture hide. It was dark and quiet, had a dirt floor. She had settled very well. And I said, I'm going to be releasing her soon. I'm going to let you go in and see her. Now, all you're going to see is this bowl in the corner. You're not going to take any photographs. You're not going to say anything. You're just going to see her rolled up in the ball and then you're going to leave. But it's going to be one of the most amazing animal sightings that you'll ever have because this animal is very rare. And I ushered everyone in and everyone was absolutely quiet. And as I went in, Roxy woke up and I was very near her and she sort of shuffled very oddly and ended up in my lap. And I immediately, when I looked at her, realized, you know, your brain and your your actions don't always follow fast enough. Um, you know, your brain is still working and your mind is working and your hands don't quite know what to do. And I realized I was, something was wrong, but my, my brain wasn't quite catching up. And I look, as I looked down, I saw that there was something rolled up inside. She was rolled around, but there was something inside her. And I literally thought, Maria, you're going to get bitten by your first snake. It's bitten Roxy. That's why she's at walking so oddly. She's come to you and the snake is going to bite you. And as that process was working its way out, I thought, no, it's not a snake. And I realized she was giving birth in my lap. And I handed my phone to a volunteer and I'm on record as saying, you know, something unusual is happening. Start videoing this. I don't know what's going on. And she starts videoing and, and Roxy's got this baby um, and it's still attached by its umbilical cord. And I get my wits about me and I say to everyone, out. Hand me back my phone, everybody out. Thank you so much. You've actually seen a lot more than what we expected. You've just seen the first documented birth of a Cape Griffin in a human's lap, but everybody out. So I took Roxy and I put her back where she had been sleeping. 
And I videoed a little bit how she was dealing with the pup and trying to um, break the, the cord between them. And he was trying to peek his head out and, you know, she would roll around him, but she was still very calm. But I made the decision very quickly to leave. I analyzed whether or not it would be worth getting a vet out there, you know, what they could do. And she seemed so comfortable with this birth process. And I knew she was an older pangolin. I could tell from her scales. So I thought she's probably done this before. She's done it without me. Um, I can only cause any harm. I probably won't cause harm, but I could cause harm. I'm going to leave. And I left her. Um, and I came back a couple of hours later. She was much more settled. And I made the decision to move in with her. So I moved in on a mattress into my vulture hide and I recorded everything. You know, the scientist in me just kicked in. And, you know, I didn't say she woke up at four o'clock. I said she woke up at 4.02 and, she, you know, she started drinking water at 4.06 and the baby started drinking at 4.08. Um, and I recorded everything. And Roxy would want to go out into the wild to eat between around 10 o'clock at night and two o'clock in the morning. And it was very warm. It was almost summer, so very hot during the days. And that's typically when penguins go out. And we didn't want to ruin her, her milk cycle. This had never been done before. I couldn't find anyone who had ever been in the same circumstance. So I would go out with her and I'd put a headlamp at the front of my face and, and a, a headlamp at the back for security, hoping that leopards wouldn't start, you know, stalking me. And I would follow her through this bush to this day. I don't know how I did it. And... Then she would come back and it got to the point where she would start bringing her pup. Um, she would often want to sleep next to me and she would bring her pup and the pup would sleep next to me and he would crawl, crawl all over me. And I really kept a hands on a, off, a hands off approach. I would weigh him once a day, but that's all I would do other than if she brought him to me um, or, or actively showed that she wanted um, him on me or, you know, crawled on me with him. So that's how we started this this relationship. And a couple of times during the evening, I would lose her. I mean, she would just go under a bush and I would be stuck there, massive thorn bushes, and she would always come back in the morning. And one evening, it had been raining for a couple of days, my volunteer and I brought her in and she would do this thing whenever she wanted to chat with me and she would really come to me and I would sit on the cement bench and she would put her, her front feet on my knees and she would me straight in the eyes. And I just, you know, whether I, I believed it, whether it was true, I knew what she was thinking. And I knew she wanted to go back out. I knew she was hungry. And if, you, if I'm very, very honest, I didn't want to go back out in the rain. And I was confident she would come back. Um, and I made a decision to let her go. And I took her outside and I put her under a tree and I watched her walk up the hill and it has, to this day, got to be one of the biggest regrets of my life. Um, because I, I blame myself for being lazy, essentially, and not wanting to go back out there um, because I never saw her again. Um, I don't know what happened to her. Looking back at old footage, I do believe that maybe she came into heat. We do now think at the time we thought pups stayed with their mother for at least up to a year. So we thought we had plenty of time. We realize now that's probably a much shorter period of time. Um, maybe she had an accident. Maybe she died. Maybe she naturally would have taken the pup. Maybe she would have separated from him at that time. We just simply don't know. 
Um, but I certainly regret it. So she went off. She didn't have a tracker and I never saw her again. And I'm now stuck with what was an incredibly healthy pup um, who emotionally loses his mother. Um, he loses milk, which is all he's had up until that point. I am desperately trying to find a milk substitute. I'm trying to find anyone who's done this before. I can't find anyone. And this pup is dying. He's just every day I weigh him. Every day he's losing weight. I feel like an absolute, absolute failure. Um, and I eventually get one of my volunteers and she gets him out eating some ants, but it's not enough to stabilize him. And one day I'm sitting in my house with him on my lap, just, just trying to think of any formula. I've, I've got a couple of ideas from people around the world, but so far I've, I've found nothing that he will sustainably eat. And I open a pack of crackers and I've got some sour cream and I'm just trying to eat because I am myself losing weight. Um, I'm under a lot of pressure, which I'm putting on myself and, and very, very stressed. And so I'm losing weight and I just want to eat something quickly. And as I'm eating this, Katiti, the little baby penguin, comes and he starts licking the sour cream. And I'm, I, I am just so, I, I can't believe he's actually eating something. And I immediately call Roxy. And I also remember her words exactly. And she said, I said, can I let him eat sour cream? It's sour cream. Should he be eating sour cream? And she said, Maria, if he's eating anything, it's better than nothing. So uh, there he went eating sour cream. We eventually got him with enough strength that he started eating ants. We found a milk formula that he would take. And Katita became an absolute success story. He started foraging 100% on his own. He allowed us to follow behind him for every forage and research him. We got a tracker on him and things were going really, really, really well. Um, long story short, um, I eventually got another pangolin. Katiti's tracker goes dead while somebody else is walking him. She loses him, um, but Katiti goes wild. And I've got my next pangolin, Honey Bun, to raise um, with all the experience I had of Katiti. So with that kind of experience, um, how can you now not want to dedicate your entire life to the species? Um, so, you know, Roxy was really the catapult to my love of penguins. And, and each one that comes in, I, I love with all my heart and soul. And, you know, penguins are one of the hardest animals to raise. Um, while I now have really good milk and, and some veterinarian protocols that I've tested and, and that have been successful, I'm not always successful. And, and, you know, you give your heart and soul to this animal because they require it. A penguin requires you to give them everything. They are with their mother 24-7 almost, or at least probably 20, you know, 21-7 of every day, except if their mother's foraging um, when they're young. And, and you have to provide that same function. So um, it hurts a lot. Um, a little piece of my heart absolutely breaks off and is gone every time I don't succeed. And I think that need to succeed as much as possible is what made me dedicate my life to them. Speaking of the pangolin, you made a remarkable documentary entitled Pangolins, the World Most Wanted Animal, with Sir David Attenborough as the narrator. 
I was both moved and touched by the scenes of you traveling up to Vietnam, Thailand, and China to show how this unusual scaly animal has become one of the most poached and illegally trafficked animals in the world. Now, please allow me to play a devil's advocate, if I may. It is a well-known fact that the pangolin is a highly sought after animal in China for its traditional Chinese medicines. And your stated mission, as far as I can tell, is to put a stop to it. Maria, who are you that you, a foreigner and an American to boot, should question China's 5,000 years of history and civilization when it comes to choices the Chinese people have to make with special reference to the pangolin? And why should China and the rest of the world care about the pangolin? Stephen, if I'm completely honest, I love this question. Um, and I really admire the fact that you asked it because I think a lot of interviewers um, maybe wouldn't have the guts to ask a question like that. And, and it's such a good question. So let me put it this way. Um, first of all, uh, the BBC program was amazing. And to be able to be a part of a program with Sir David Attenborough was, you know, he's just such an icon. It, it really doesn't get better than that. But BBC was also amazing in that they're very aware of, of all the elements of a production. So I was very clear, and, and we mutually agreed, that my trip over to Asia wasn't to try to dictate what the policies and programs in Asia would be. As you say, um, I was born in the United States, I'm now a Namibian, um, you know, spent more than half of my life in Africa, that doesn't really give me the right um, or really the know-how to go over to a community that I know very little about, honestly, and, and dictate to them how they need to treat pangolins. Um, but what we decided was, and, and what I felt so strongly about, was that I was going over there to learn. The same reason I came to Africa was to learn. And um, by that time, I was very aware that I didn't have many solutions. So I wanted to work with people like, say, Vietnam's wildlife. Those are Vietnamese that have grown up in their culture, um, grown up in their programs. They have a right to say what's going to happen in their communities and, and their country. Um, Angela Baby, uh, an amazing movie star and an environmentalist who, you know, speaks Chinese who is so well known um, in all of Asia. I mean, if you just mention her name and the fact that you might be chatting with her the next day, everybody just can't believe that, you know, you have that honor. She's just so well respected and she's young and she's got this, this sweet but strong nature about her um, that, you know, makes her not only loved but cherished and well respected in her community. So I was meeting with those kind of people and, and basically my role wasn't to say what you should do. My role was to say, what can I do to help you? You know, this is my experience. These are my views in Africa to save 
African pangolins. What can I do to help you from my experience save pangolins in your countries um, and on your continent? So that's a very different scenario than, than, than you know, how it could appear if you, know, you thought of me going over there to try to dictate. So it wasn't that at all. And one really good example I have here in Namibia has been, I work really closely with the Herero community. Um, my ex-husband speaks Herero fluently. His father spoke it fluently. And um, it's a community that I really love and value. Now, the Herero chiefs and community believe that if you find a pangolin, you take the pangolin live to the chief and he throws it in the fire. And everybody in the community that's in the surrounding area has a piece of that meat and is that eating the eating of that meat because the pangolin is so special and honored actually brings you good wishes and good tidings for the rest of your life. So we worked really hard with the leaders and the, the community um, chiefs to say, come on out to our place. Now, if we had a pangolin and it had to be the right scenario, so it had to be a pup that we were raising that was very comfortable um, around humans. At the time, we let them hold them. Now we just say, okay, we will hold the pangolin and you can stand next to us. And they would take a picture with this pangolin. And the chiefs themselves would go back to their community and say, we have this picture. And this picture is so powerful. It's much more powerful than just eating the meat of a dead pangolin. We now have a picture with a very self-confident live pangolin. And these powers allow us much more. So I, as the community chief or your community leaders, are asking you not to not to bring me pangolins. Leave the pangolins in the wild, and that will protect this picture that we have with a live pangolin that has much stronger powers. So instead of us going into the community, or even Namibian law saying, you, the Hereros, are not allowed to kill pangolins anymore, um, we were able to just adjust the beliefs a little bit and, and have the community themselves, the leadership themselves, start protecting the pangolins. I mean, if that's not a win-win situation, um, and that's how I try to, to tr handle all of my interactions with communities um, and not go in, um, I don't think it matters if I'm white or black or a woman or male or whatever, um, you enter a community, um, I think you have to in a very humble position and see how you can work with them. And I think um, those are both examples of how we were really effectively able to do that. On the 4th December 2022, The Guardian published a powerful editorial entitled The Guardian's View on Biodiversity Collapse, the Crisis Humanity Can No Longer Ignore. The editorial said, among other things, and I quote, For too long, governments have treated biodiversity as a secondary and separate issue focusing their energy on global heating. In reality, as images of polar bears on shrinking ice illustrate, the two crises overlap. The ecosystems that sustain natural variety also help regulate the climate. The forests, coral reefs, 
and mangroves of the world, which provide a home to a dazzling array of species, capture carbon that would otherwise contribute to rising temperatures, rapacious economic activity and environmental indifference is thus destroying natural equilibriums that protects, protect us too, end of quotations. Maria, as a conservationist, and in light of the 2022 Montreal COP15 deal, how important is it for our political leaders to recognize that our human fate is ultimately bound up with the survival of endangered and misunderstood animals? Well, I think it's vital that our political leaders recognize that. I also think it's vital that the public in general recognizes that. So coming from a little bit of a political background, I understand that as a politician, you have to deal with what your community or your nation is worried about at that moment. So, you know, often politicians are, are working from day to day or week to week. They're, they're, they're trying to look at the long term, but they're often very busy with the short term. You know, people need their roads, they need their education, they need their safety issues. You know, all of those kind of issues often will come before the environment because the environment's there, but it's not really affecting people on a day-to-day -day basis in the past. Suddenly, I think within the last even couple of years, the general public is being faced with environmental issues on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, the earthquakes that are happening, the flooding that's happening, the droughts that are happening, the extreme environmental weather patterns are a direct result of the conservation activities that we've had in the past or the lack of conservation activities that we've had in the past. So I think it's suddenly becoming easier for politicians to be able to say, this is an issue that we're not going to just you know, give a little bit of a handshake to and try to handle in the future. We can start really pushing in our communities and our legislation and our national and international laws, um, you know, things like solar and power, wind power, um, you know, less gases, less coal, that type of thing. And while that hurts certain parts of communities or certain businesses that have built their basis on those um, aspects and, and had very strong lobbying impacts before, enough of the world is now saying we're reaching a point um, that is very close to breaking. And an analogy that was shared with me many years ago, and I it just had such an impact on me, I think because it was so simple and because I love flying, is that you've got an airplane and your airplane is held together with pop rivets. So, you know, as, as a, um, a person in society, you've got this plane, but you also have a little few side projects um, that you're building on the side and, and you have a lack of pop rivets. So you take a few pop rivets out of your plane and you put them into these side projects and your plane still flies. It's fine. You know, you've taken out every other pop rivet from a section that's not really needed. And as time goes by, you continue to take pop rivets because there's a lack of pop rivets and you take them out of your plane and you continue to put them into these other projects. There is going to be a point and it's going to happen with one pop rivet where you take out 
that last one that can be taken out that makes your aircraft viable. And you might be able to take off. You might even get into the air, but you've taken out too many pop rivets and your plane crashes. And now suddenly, instead of being able to take some of those pop rivets back and put them back into your plane, you've got a crashed plane. You have to fix the wings. You have to fix the fuselage. You have to fix, you know, all the parts of the plane that were destroyed during this crash. Um, and that is much, much harder than fixing the plane with a few pop rivets that you put back while it's still in working order. And I think, and I'm not a doomsday person, uh, you know, I'm not a Pollyanna that puts on my rose-tinted glasses and sees the world as perfectly as I wish it was. I'm, I'm quite realistic. Um, I think we're close to taking out that key last pop rivet. And I think the world in general has suddenly realized we're close. It's not just environmentalists and sort of fringe leftists that are saying, you know, our world is in dire needs. It's suddenly, you know, conservatives. It's it's suddenly the general population. It's suddenly a lot of leaders around the world are realizing that we're close to taking out that last vital pop rivet. Um, and we need to stop before we do. So I think that we're going to make it. I, I hope that we're going to make it. I have my bad days where I read things in the newspaper and I think maybe we just won't. Um, but I think it, it's, it's become a, a recognized world problem in general communities now with the flooding, with the fires, with the earthquakes, that enough leaders have the responsibility and the go um, ahead from their communities to actually respond before it's too late. The title of our podcast is How to Love Endangered and Misunderstood Animals. Maria, in the context of our podcast title, talk us through your primary pangolin conservation center, which you are now working on in Nigeria's Emerald Forest Reserve. And what makes this project so unique? That is, what will it add to our understanding of endangered and misunderstood animals? Well, first of all, Nigeria is the number one spot for illegally trafficking animals around the world. It's one of the reasons that I've chosen to work in Nigeria at the moment is because I think I can make the most impact there with my expertise. Emerald Forest is a very unique situation. Um, I was in Nigeria. Uh, there had been an international call. There was a gentleman who had five pangolin pups, infants, that he was trying to raise off the black market, and he just simply didn't have the expertise to do it. Very, very well-qualified vet, but as I said, pangolins are really difficult. So I had raised one at a time before, and that's pretty much all anyone's ever raised, is, is one at a time, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But to have five was groundbreaking. So I went over there and I managed to raise these five pangolins and get them to the point where we put trackers on them and release them back in the wild. So my time in Nigeria was effectively over. And I was at an event um, and there was a quite a distinguished dignitary from Nigeria there who was one of the keynote speakers, Commissioner of Health for Lagos. And I was really impressed. Um, I had listened to him 
during the, the press conferences and the event afterwards. And the event had ended for me. I was ready to get back. I had lots of penguins I still had to feed that night. So I didn't want to be out late. And I called my Uber and was heading out of the venue. And I literally, as I came around the corner, I ran into this gentleman physically ran into him and uh you know we sort of shook our heads and said you know so sorry and he said oh you know in what capacity are you here and i explained oh i'd been here you know doing some pangolin work but i was just getting ready to leave and he um he said oh well isn't that fascinating i have a, a piece of property the emerald forest and we've just been given a poached pangolin by the community and i have this Penguin and I, I'm not quite sure what to do with it. So I said, well, when did it come in? And he said, yesterday. And I said, um, well, I'm very willing to help. The next day, a chat group was set up amongst all the members. And I was immediately rushed to Emerald Forest and was able to bring the penguin back. And long story short, I was able to give it care. It responded amazingly quickly to the care I was able to give it because it was very malnutritioned and, and very dehydrated. And this pangolin was ready to release very, very quickly, within a week. So I took the pangolin back to the commissioner and, you know, very proudly said, you know, you can get her back into the forest. She'll be fine. And he sat me down and he said, would you like to work in Nigeria for me? And I said, well, in what capacity? So he said, well, I've got Emerald Forest. Um, we have this vision. And part of the vision is conservation. And I'd like you to come up and, and, and be the conservationist there, um, or one of the conservationists there for the animal center. So basically we have designed with the architect that the commissioner provided a beautiful um, animal clinic. Um, it's specifically designed to hold penguins because they have specific needs, but it can take other animals in addition to that. But Emerald Forest in itself is a very holistic concept. Um, my little part is is the clinic and and the animal welfare and and the conservation needs of the forest. But there's a massive reforestation project for logging communities and neighboring areas um, around Emerald Forest. There is a um, sustainable food project for um, fruit and vegetables and palm oil that are sustainably harvested, sustainably grown. Um, you know, no, no pesticides used. There's a bee project. I mean, it's this this concept, even the builders and the building um, has been done very sustainably and with the environment in, in mind and finding ways to do it environmentally friendly. Um, so the commissioner and his family, uh, his sisters, um, are in charge of Emerald Forests. I'm only a very small part of it, but the plans are massive. And to be able to do biobanking, I mean, the commissioner is a, a world-respected leader in his field of biobanking and diseases, zoonotic diseases that go from animals to humans. And so he's got this expertise and, and these connections and the will and the drive to do things that I never, ever would have been a part of um, in any other scenario. So Emerald Forest is very dear to my heart. Um, it's a totally different environment than what I'm used to in Namibia with very few people. Um, you know, Nigeria is, the you know, Lagos is the most populated city in Africa. Um, so for me socially, it's it's got some challenges. 
Um, but Emerald Forest is is just going to be this project that I know, um, with my small involvement and everyone else's massive involvements, is going to be a world leader in the way forward of how to sustainably live and be able to utilize our forests and teach communities how to live with their forest and not against it. What things would you recommend our listener to do? That is, things if done properly would have a meaningful impact on endangered and misunderstood animals. Well, I think the first thing that anyone can do is become informed. It's just so easy with Google nowadays to see within your own environment, within your own communities, within your own nation, what are the endangered animals and are there any organizations that you can support or internationally? You know, if you look at a video of a pangolin, because we've been able to take ethical videos um, of penguins, you know, because we're raising them, because they're used to humans. So when we release them, we're able to, you know, get shots and photographs of penguins. And people around the world that have never seen one, will probably never see one, have fallen in love with them. So, you know, they can then do searches and say, what organization, what type of organization do I want to support so that I can, you know, help this pangolin? Um, um, or any other animal. It's not just about the animals that I love. As I said before, I really think that there's a place and a love for all animals. Um, I just happen to be working with these that I, I think need the most attention. One of the things that has really hit me in the most recent years is that I think before I always had an impression that the most, uh, or that the strongest contributors to conservation we're sort of in two age groups. One was those that were either university or doing, you know, uh, masters, postdocs, doctorate degrees, and really into research, you know, and could get in there, could find some funding, could actually do research on these species. And they are very important. That community is massively important. And, and the profile that we've been able to gain for penguins in the last 10 years has, made that, has meant that there's a lot more research going on that's vital and key. Um, or I thought the other really important one for us was that sort of successful older generation that had some money that they could donate. So they would give, you know, sizable donations to your project that would help, you know, support your work. But interestingly enough, in the last couple of years, what has fascinated me is the youngest generation. And by youngest, I mean young. I'm talking five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds that are taking their birthday money, um, you know, that grandma and grandpa and parents have given them, and they're donating it to my organization. They've seen documentaries. They've, you know, looked up the videos. They have a feeling they know who I am and what I stand for, and they've fallen in love with this, these animals, and they're actually at that age giving to an organization. Um, I've got two young women that, again, under 10 years old, that had very long hair, have cut their hair, given it to um, cancer survivors for wigs, and then gotten the community to give them donations for cutting their hair and given those donations to help save penguins. 
Now, if I'm honest at that age, seven years old, I was riding my pony. Um, I was doing a lot for him, but I was not watching nature documentaries and giving my birthday money to an international conservation that I had never even visited. So I am thoroughly impressed with this younger generation. And I have so much hope for this world because of this younger generation. And, you know, it's not just one or two children. I, I just got this handful. I mean, and, and you're seeing these young people internationally on television, standing in front of the United Nations, standing in front of political leaders and sharing their voice and having the courage and the support from their communities and from the world to do that. So when these young people turn 20 and 30 and 40, um, you know, I think the changes around this world are going to be monumental. And, you know, that's what gives me the most hope. So any one person can make a difference. And I think um, through me, social media and, you know, the, the interconnections of the world and the people of the world, individuals are realizing that as individuals, they can make differences. Expanding on possible participation of our listener, how would a listener participate in your fundraising drive, Nifty Pangolins? Well, Nifty Pangolins is an amazing concept. So what happened is there's a gentleman in the UK who I would call an entrepreneur or an inventor. He's one of those generation and one of those individuals that just thinks out of the box. What he's thinking today is what's on our shelves as consumers 10 or 20 years from now. He's got that kind of mind. And he saw the documentary with BBC and decided that he really wanted to approach me and see if he could do something more than just self-fulfillment. Um, he really wants to help save something in the world. And he decided penguins would be a really achievable um, goal. So he approached me and he said, I've got this team together. And he really had brought together this amazing team of, of a business person, of a social media contact, of a computer wizard. And the concept was Nifty Penguins. So what it is, and he's an artist, is that he's done an amazing number of drawings of penguins trying to disguise themselves so that they're not poached. So they've got all of these crazy outfits on. But because pangolins are not very good at dressing themselves, they've confused the elements of the, the wardrobe. And for instance, if there's a NFT pangolin, nifty pangolin, um, that's supposed to be a fast food worker, um, that outfit has been distributed amongst six pangolins. So one of the pangolins has the hat and another one has the vest and another one has the logo and another one has the shoes. And the one that has the hat maybe also has a construction worker's gloves on and he maybe has a mine worker's boots on and he has a professor's vest on. So the outfits are just totally randomly on all these different pangolins. But the pangolins have put them together really quickly trying to hide from the human poachers. So the goal of a Nifty Pangolin supporter, and, and I must say that the concept of an NFT, now what an NFT is, is it's a crypto piece of artwork. So you buy it with cryptocurrency. Most people know what it is. Um, I'm too 
um, uneducated to be able to try and explain it, but you can Google it. But this artwork is actually, some of it's selling for millions of dollars. Um, it's, it's a legitimate piece of artwork and investment. And most of them are sold as investments in art. But Nifty took it a little bit further and said, not only can you make an investment in the artwork, you could support conservation and, and pangolin conservation specifically by buying this. So the investors, what they do is they buy this piece of artwork. At the moment, it's fairly inexpensive. I think a, a Nifty Penguin NFT is, is about 35 US dollars. Um, pretty much anyone can afford that. I have bought some at full price um, because I'm so excited about the project. So you have this investment. Now, what you're hoping is that it will go viral, you know, that some influencers will look at it, that, you know, some well, you know, savvy media people will look at it and, and you'll sell quite a few of them. So investments will go up, everybody will be happy and, you know, you sell more. Um, but the, the, the concept behind it is that you have these investors that actually want to do more than invest. They want to be part of the Nifty Pangolin community. Um, they want to be able to trade. So I eventually, to be a VIP NFT holder, will get a pangolin that's dressed completely as that mine worker or that professor or that fast food you know, worker. And each of them, I mean, we're looking at the range of people in every community. Um, it's not just elite, you know, it's, it's everybody from the bottom jobs to the top jobs. And if you can get and trade and, you know, talk to people and I'll trade you this pangolin that has, you know, your vest for that pangolin that has the vest I want for my worker, um, you know, and you just have fun with it, then a, a, a VIP holder, somebody who gets that whole outfit together, actually has massive rewards of, you know, coming and visiting the center, fully paid flights and, you know, being able to see a pangolin and that kind of thing firsthand. Um, but it's more about the community and how this would go further is that it would support Emerald Forest, but it would also support nine other pangolin organizations around the world. So we've chosen different countries, different organizations that are like I was, um, well, like I still am basically, you know, struggling day to day to find enough money. Um, you know, you've got a little bit of a name and, you know, but you might need a clinic or you might need to be able to get enough milk to feed those pangolins. And we want to be able to support those kind of organizations um, around the world and make it international. And then those organizations in turn start working together. We start doing research that's compatible and comparable. And that will change the world from a research point of view. Um, and it hasn't been done. You know, a person might work together with, here with a person that works together there and they'll share their modus operandi, but they're not necessarily using the same equipment and the same methodology um, that is so vital for really, really good top um, quality research. So Nifty is more than, you know, about just buying a piece of artwork um, with some cryptocurrency. It's about an entire community of supporters that support um, pangolin conservation internationally. And that is so exciting to be a part of. Do you have a website you can point them to? Yes, we do have a website. You can Google Nifty Pangolins. Um, they've got a website. You can Google Pangolins International. 
Um, much of our media exposure was still under my old organization's name, Rare and Endangered Species Trust. You Google any of that, um, pangolins, Namibia, Maria Diekman, and you'll you know be able to follow the thread of of what we're doing, how we're doing it, and who we're doing it with. Finally, Maria, what makes you passionate and gets you motivated? Well, as you can see, animals get me motivated and passionate, and probably I talk way too much. Um, but I think I, I'm passionate about so many things. I'm I'm starting to get involved with an organization called Rebel Girls. Now, Rebel Girls is a worldwide organization that is trying to empower young women by providing books and, you know, support and, and education to young girls around the world. That makes me passionate. Um, I would be just as passionate about helping an organization for young men. Um, so children, education, research, um, our world make me passionate. But my expertise, what I'm really good at and what I have experience with is raising animals, um, particularly vultures and bats and pangolins. So I think... I can be passionate about a lot of things, but what I'm going to be most vocal about in my passion is what I know about and where I think I can make a difference in the world. Um, I think that wouldn't be right if I wasn't passionate and vocal about those issues, because there I, I know what I'm talking about and I can make a difference. Ms. Maria Dickman, thank you very much for taking the time to be a guest on this podcast. You really are an inspiration. Well, thank you for having me, Stephen. Um, this was all your idea. You're, I think, a, a leader in the world on doing podcasts like this and, and getting people out there and getting their voices heard. So thank you so much. This podcast was brought to you by the Kamgasa Challenge. This podcast episode is dedicated to Mrs. Antoinette Nira Warren, a much-loved mother to Maria Dickman. Mrs. Warren passed away on the 11th of June, 2022, at the age of 82 years old. The third episode in our climate change series is entitled Climate Change, a crisis between town and country an interview with Ms. Anna Jones, an agricultural journalist and broadcaster. It will go live on the 12th June, 2023. Thank you very much indeed for taking the time to listen to this podcast. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>